Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And I'm happy to welcome Kate Farmer back to the program. She's a Young Voices contributor as well as a student. In fact, Kate, for the sake of people meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Hi. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be back. Uh, My name's Kate. I am a sophomore student at Washington University in St. Louis. I've been with Young Voices for about three months now, and my writing centers around healthcare, mental health, especially as it pertains to technology and Gen Z. Okay, so I have to admit, this is something, I did not see the lines crossing between um, AI and and therapy, but here I am looking at an article that you penned for Real Clear Science, AI therapy is here, but the oversight isn't. Um, wow, where do we begin? I mean, look, I, I just I just sat down for the first time last week and started doing some some writing stuff with AI and was super impressed how did it find its way into therapy? Yeah, so AI therapy, or at least therapy chatbots, have been around for a very long time. And I, I touch on this a bit in the article, but some of the first uh, therapy chatbots we saw were back, back in the 60s with programs like Eliza that were very rudimentary forms of a listening ear. And so a user would put in inputs and the computer would recognize some of the words and produce a very standard therapist-like response of an output. But they were generally regarded as satire, or they were not regarded in the same way that they are today. But today we have, you know, we're in an AI revolution right now, and we're seeing more and more of what are called natural language processing models. And these work completely differently. Um, They're they're based on, and essentially to give the, the brief, you know, rundown on how they work, they absorb large, large chunks of text, and they become very good at pattern recognition. And so when you see A and B, it's often followed by C, not D or E or seven or France. And it's that times, basically times a million. And so it absorbs a ton of the data that it has accessible on the internet and is able to predict with a fairly high degree of accuracy what a standard output would be. And so we can put that in a therapy setting here. And when a user responds with a certain you know, input, it's going to give you a certain set of outputs that it's determined would be fitting. And so in therapy, it's doing basically that. Um, and <laughs> as you can probably guess, it, it gets things right and it gets things wrong. <laughs> and it, it really depends on the company and the system you're using on what you're going to get. And so as we see advancements in AI in every sphere of life, we're seeing it pop up more and more in therapy. So that's something we as people interested in mental health in general need to need to be thinking about. So talk to me about the regulatory oversight that's that's needed to make sure that uh, that this AI isn't, you know, giving wrong answers or giving answers that, uh, that could actually be harmful. Yeah, so there's really two pathways that we can look at this, and neither of them are particularly satisfying right now, but there's the greater overhead concern of regulation on AI in general. That's a conversation we're seeing across the world right now on these AI systems are developing faster than the speed of regulation. They're developing so fast that many experts in machine learning, most experts don't even really know where it's going themselves. It's, you know, barely down the runway. And AI regulation in general is something we're going to have to wait and see how it pans out. And we're seeing, you know, countries like Italy banning chat GPT. We see a lot of European Union countries trying on a bunch of hats, trying to see which kinds of laws might help. Um, But the other side that's more pertinent to therapy is the FDA regulatory landscape. And that's mainly what I focus in on my article, because that's 
realistically what we're looking at for AI therapy specifically. Um, AI therapy chatbots right now are classified by the FDA as general wellness products. And a general wellness product is essentially what the FDA calls a very low risk medical device. And so there are three classes of regulation for medical devices. General wellness products are products that don't even meet the bottom degree of concern. They're regarded to be just for general benefit in someone's life. They're regulated in the way that like a computer game or like an audio file would be regulated. And so a class one device, for example, is the lowest level of regulation. We're talking like medical gloves or, you know, breast pumps, the stuff you'd buy at CVS that you wouldn't even really call a medical device. There's some degree of oversight for those on, you know, user safety and also transparency of the claims they make about products. AI therapy right now is not even at that standard of regulation. It is only subject to general guidelines that the FDA released four years ago. And so it's the, the kicker here is that as long as they don't make claims about individual conditions they can treat, they can skirt by as just a general wellness use. And so it can't say, I'm gonna treat you for postpartum depression or I'm gonna treat you for anxiety. It can say, I can help your general mental well-being. And as long as a company does that, which is usually in the terms and conditions, it can proceed to give you therapy and advice without having to prove the claims it makes about its products or without having to you know, provide evidence that they work and they're safe to the FDA. Talk to me about the Turing test that is used to uh, to rank or to, to measure, you know, AI's abilities. Um, what exactly does that consist of? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Yeah, the Turing test is oddly, we don't, we're hearing more talk about it. Well, not oddly, um, unsurprisingly, um, we're hearing more talk about the Turing test. Um, in, in a very brief essence, the Turing test uh, gauges whether or not an AI can convincingly pass as a human. And <laughs> That's actually a test that's been passed for quite a long time now. It goes without saying that AI systems are highly compelling in their, mo- in their mimicking of the human. Um, we remember the sort of Google whistleblower scandal that came out over a year ago now where one of the developers was convinced it was human, real-life Turing tests playing out there. But the greater worry now is that we know that these systems mimic humans with a fairly high degree of accuracy. Some chatbots more than others, mind you, but in general, that they've long passed that ability. What we're working at right now is how do we work with this, these systems knowing what they're capable of doing and knowing what modern developments like GPT-4 are going to be able to do in the future. And with therapy, that's obviously an important concern. Wow. I, I'm just amazed. And maybe I'm late to the party, but it just seems like... AI is is not only taking off, as you mentioned, it's actually been around for for a bit, but it seems like it's improving or or it's it's developing um, very very quickly. Like it's it's moving into new new frontiers at, a, at an ever accelerating rate. Yes, and it is truly moving faster than the speed of regulation. And it's no surprise that we're seeing, you know, just this past week, uh, a major open letter by leaders in the AI world and all sorts of folks. We have Elon Musk, we have Steve Wozniak, Andrew Yang signing on saying we need a halt on AI developments as advanced as GPT-4 or more in the next six months. We need sort of an AI summer was their term to step back and evaluate what these systems can do to make sure that they're safe before we keep barreling on quickly. Um, The concerning element here applying that to therapy is that 
when AI therapy systems are available, people are going to use them. They have a lot of benefits that a regular provider cannot provide that individuals are going to seek out. I mean, the cost for one thing, it's free or extremely low cost. There's no wait times. You can log onto your phone at any time of the day and not have to talk to another person, look them in the eye and just put your thoughts out for immediate reception. And sometimes this can be effective and this can be helpful. And so with AI systems like AI therapy, they're going to stay. And even if we regulate them heavily, which is a good or a bad idea, we're waiting to see kind of how this pans out. But for every system that gets squashed down by a thumb, another one's going to pop up and meet this, this need. And so the way to be looking at this is, okay, for the foreseeable future, AI therapy systems are going to be here. They have millions of users as is. How can we make sure that they're safe and they're transparent about what they provide, what they can't provide, and what users are actually going to get? Yeah, as you mentioned in your article, um, it, it's funny when we see AI try to answer, you know, something, you know, something that, that doesn't have as, as high as stakes. But when you're dealing with somebody's <laughs> mental health, suddenly, you know, the, the stakes are much, much higher and a, and a wrong answer could, could go places that uh, people really don't want to go. Yeah, the stakes are a lot higher. And that's why this is just starting to get attention. I think this is going to get a lot more attention in the future. Um, what I would the advice I would give to someone listening right now who's thinking of using an AI therapy service or trying it out is absolutely do not use a general use chatbot for anything related to therapy or mental health. A major story that's taken up this space really recently is a Belgian man, story of the Belgian man with climate anxiety who was led on to commit suicide from a chatbot called Chai. And that's been dominating a lot of this conversation recently. And a real worry users should be worried about. It also shows the dangers of using a generalized conversational chatbot that's not intended for therapy. So if listeners can get one thing out of this conversation is that if you're going to try these out, make sure it's a reputable, well-documented, more professional service like Wobot and not a generalized chatbot that doesn't have those constraints baked in. Wow. I, I had forgotten about the story about the guy in Belgium until you mentioned it, but you're right. That's that's a little bit disturbing. Again, we're talking with Kate Farmer. Kate is a Young Voices contributor. Where, Kate, can people find you online? Where can they follow you on social media? Yeah, so you can look me up on LinkedIn. My articles go there. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Kate S. Farmer. S is in snake. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we are happy to uh, welcome Ryan Burkaw. Ryan, did I say your name right? Do you want to help me with that? You did. You're actually the first person to get it right on the first try. Yes! <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to have you on the program. And uh, we've got a very interesting, and it appears a very timely topic to discuss. Before we go there, though, uh, you're a Young Voices contributor, but tell us just a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm 27 years old. I'm a Taurus. <laughs> I am. Uh, <laughs> Long walks on the beach. In, absolutely. I, uh, I spent five years in the Marines as an intelligence analyst. I, uh, I was a contractor for the Department of Defense for about two years, and uh, I just graduated from American University with a Bachelor of Arts in International Studies and a regional concentration in East Asia back in December. 
Well, boy, there's a lot of attention right now on uh, China and Taiwan. And, and I, I'm not even sure that I'm aware of exactly what to, what the Chinese are doing, but um, the, the reports I'm hearing uh, give me the impression that China has uh, has basically moved a lot of, of ships and, and uh, military uh, personnel around Taiwan. And uh, tell me, what exactly does that mean? Uh, I haven't really, to be honest with you, I really haven't had time to take a close look at it. Um, but typically... Anything that China does as it relates to Taiwan is typically strategic signaling. So uh, since since China considers Taiwan to be, you know, its inherent property, basically a renegade province, uh, anytime Taiwan engages in any sort of display of, of what Beijing perceives to be sovereignty, they uh, they use military, diplomatic, and, and economic levers to sort of signal their displeasure with that. Ah. Uh. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, and I'm, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was uh, Taiwan's president came here to the U.S. this last week uh, for a visit. So maybe that would explain why why China is posturing as it is. I'm looking at an article of yours in International Policy Digest about in there are no uh, the, this war game shows there are no winners in a war over Taiwan, and uh, it seems like this is this is a pretty serious threat. I mean, we don't we don't have. I think most Americans don't have it on our radar screens, but it's still something that is very uh, critical, of, of, of critical importance to, to U.S. leaders. Um, set the stage for us, if you will, about uh, um, is, is there danger of the China-Taiwan um, situation going kinetic? Yeah, I mean, the, the danger has always been there, essentially, since the since the PRC conquered the mainland in 1949. So just to kind of give you an idea of the background and context to the situation, um, the uh, mainland China used to be controlled by the Republic of China, which was, uh, you know, a, a Leninist uh, Chinese nationalist party, right, aligned with the U.S. And uh, they were one of our major allies in the fight against Japan in World War II. Uh, when the war ended... The, uh, the communists sort of uh, seized the moment with the, the Republic of China in a weakened state and essentially just militarily devastated. So the remnants of that Republic of China government fled to Taiwan and established what we now know as Taiwan. And so um, in, in, the, in the opening years after World War II, the U.S. really didn't pay that much attention to it. And, uh, MacArthur considered it to be an unsinkable aircraft carrier, but in Washington, there really just wasn't that much focus on the matter. That was until the Korean War broke out and Mao retained his uh, his intention of retaking the island which resulted in the uh, the first taiwan strait crisis so it looked like you know the prc was posturing to invade so the u.s sent the seventh fleet there to uh signal deterrence and ever since then taiwan's been a uh, regional security partner and so uh and so because uh because beijing maintains that that there's one china and that taiwan's part of china they've never uh relinquish the option to use force to settle that dispute. And so that's essentially the the genesis of the situation that we find ourselves into today. Uh, U.S.-Taiwan relations have kind of had ebbs and flows. Um, a, a quick look at history will show that the U.S. used to formally recognize Taiwan, but due to strategic perceived strategic necessity during the Cold War, the U.S. Uh, abandoned its formal recognition of Taiwan and recognized Beijing instead. Talk to me so, about... Talk to me about the war games that, that were recently held, or at least that were, were conducted, to, to kind of just explore. What are, what are some of the possible scenarios in a China-Taiwan actual shooting war? Who, who did the war games, and what exactly did they learn? 
So the uh, the Center of Strategic and International Studies put this war game out, I believe, in January. It seems like a million years ago now, but uh, but just a couple months ago, and and it's one of it's it is the most detailed war game ever conducted on the Taiwan Strait scenario. Typically, other war games are focused on one or two small scenarios, not very complex. But this this particular war game ran twenty four separate scenarios, and so on the surface. It looks like the U.S. is in a pretty good position, right? In 22 of 24 scenarios that were ran, Taiwan survives as a politically autonomous entity. But across the board, everybody essentially emerges weaker and less stable than when they entered the, the scenario. Um, in, in terms of what would what would trigger a conflict, uh, typically, typically Beijing says, uh, you know, if Taiwan declares independence, that's that's one of their red lines, and so. I don't remember exactly what the uh, you know the the uh, the primers for a conflict were in the in the war game, but um, but that's but that's typically the most commonly referenced one. And you point out in your article that uh, let's say that that it does come to blows between China and Taiwan, the damage isn't going to stop just with with you know thousands of dead on each side. Uh, there's there's a lot of uh, economic fallout that will extend to beyond both of those countries. Yeah, I think that I think the key thing to keep in mind with uh, with any conflict over Taiwan is that specifically the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea, right, and the Luzon Strait as well. Seventy uh, percent of global maritime trade passes through these waters, and so any conflict on any scale between any nation is a uh, is a key is a key threat to disrupting that trade, right? The uh, the modern the twenty first century was built on on the free flow of maritime traffic, and so. And so that's essentially what's at stake with with a conflict that might disrupt that trade. So um, I don't know. I don't know how much I would trust China to have cooler heads prevail. Uh, it seems like they, they can be pretty headstrong in what they're doing. Uh, Taiwan obviously has the U.S. on its side. Um, what what exactly would, would the options be for for U.S. Uh, leadership if, in fact, you know, a, a shooting war were to, to develop between China and Taiwan. I mean, is is this something that uh, the U.S. government is likely to uh, get uh, right in the middle of? I think that depends on who you ask. So if you ask uh, President Biden, President Biden said at least three times that I can recall off the top of my head that that the U.S. has a commitment to defend Taiwan. Um, that's a that's a pretty hard break from every administration since since the Mutual Defense Treaty was disbanded in 1972. I think it was uh, the official. The official policy in Washington guiding everything we do in the Indo-Pacific is that we maintain strategic ambiguity, which essentially means that we don't formally commit to defend Taiwan, but we also don't commit to not defending them either. And so uh, the the actual practical steps underpinning that policy has been dual deterrence. So dual deterrence is deterring Beijing as well as Taiwan. So the U.S. has tried to deter Taiwan from declaring independence, and we've also tried to declare deter Taiwan or China from invading the island and using force to settle the dispute. Ah, it, it, it sounds like a no-win situation, um, you know, especially for the two major com- countries that are involved. But but uh, I'm, I'm trying to get my mind around, um, should the U.S. be in the middle of that or should they should they be actively involved in it in, in the first place? Can you help me see the, the strategic value to the U.S.? I mean, beyond the, the shipping lanes, um, is, is, there, is there danger of us being pulled in more so than we would want to be. Absolutely. There's, there's certainly a lot at stake there. So for one, 
the 21st century was built on the on the fabrication of semiconductors and, and microelectronics. And Taiwan is undisputedly the most advanced fabricator of those technologies. So in a certain sense, you could say that the future of technology and civilization rests in the hands of a few small Taiwan semiconductor factories. Um, that's, that's a pretty heavy, that's a pretty heavy realization, right? Not to mention uh, Taiwan's easily one of the most transparent and, uh, and, and, uh, and effective democracies in the world. They consistently rank in the top five in transparency and effective governance. Unfortunately, uh, Ryan, we are up against the clock here. Where can people find you? Where can they follow you on social media? I uh, unfortunately don't have a very big footprint on social media. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, though. I think I've got the, I've got the same photo there with my blue suit and glasses. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Ben Ayanian back to the uh, program. Ben, I'm pretty sure I just butchered your name, despite having had you on this program many, many times, but I'm so glad to have you back. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. You actually did did pretty pretty well with my last name there, so I'm impressed. Well, I'm, I'm excited to talk with you, and, and it looks like Section 230 is up for discussion. Um, you know... I have I have had a lot of conversations with various Young Voices contributors about Section 230 over the last few years, and, and it sounds like, once again, it's an object of controversy. There are people who either want to eliminate it or otherwise alter it. Um, for, for those who are not familiar with what Section 230 refers to, let's first do a little bit of background, and then let's talk about the latest controversy. And so um, the most important points on Section 230 is that it protects... Um, Let's say you know different, it, what are called interactive um, computer services, but different websites, um, different social media companies. Let's say it protects them from liability from the things that are uploaded to their sites by third parties. So if you send out a tweet, Twitter is not going to be liable for what you tweeted. Um, it also allows these different companies to take down. Um, certain things from their website um, in good faith. So they still retain a certain level of control over what is displayed on their sites, but um, at the same time, they're not held liable or responsible for what is on their site. Okay. And specifically, uh, there's a Supreme Court case, uh, Gonzalez v. Google LLC. Tell me about some of the details behind that. So Gonzalez, uh, the plaintiff, is suing Google. Um, His daughter was um, sadly killed in the 2015 Paris terrorist attack. Um, And is suing Google because um, YouTube's algorithm reportedly um, recommended ISIS recruitment videos. So, you know, for example, if you go on YouTube and you search all kinds of things, watch videos, you're going to be recommended things that are adjacent or somewhat related to what you're looking up. Um, and so there's been a lot of backlash against YouTube um, because, you know, there there's always been a question about what should they leave up? What should they take down? How quickly do they have to do it? And so um, the plaintiff is suing Google because YouTube recommended um, ISIS recruitment videos back then. And so the question before the court is, does Section 230 protect, you know, these different websites, social media providers? um, Are they protected 
against liability for anything that's published on their site, but or um, if they have algorithms that recommend content, do they then lose liability because their algorithms are recommending certain content to individuals? So is, is there any place in this for a happy medium? I mean, I can understand the concern. You know, the ISIS recruitment videos, um, I think I would probably I would probably share the concerns Mr. Gonzalez shares that uh, that may have contributed to to the death of his daughter. However, there may be some good things out there too that to others would say, well, that's objectionable. I want to get rid of it. Is is there a place in the middle where where the sides can meet? There doesn't seem to be a happy medium, uh, at least in my opinion. Right now, I haven't seen anything suggested, and I can't think of a way that they can find a happy medium here because you know it's up to these different providers to decide what can and can't be on their site. But at the same time, there's inexplicable amounts of data being uploaded to their site at all times. So they obviously can't, you know, be monitoring things in real time. They can't take something down immediately. And they're trying to come up with different ways to be better at it. But, you know, what the court seemed to be asking um, in this case, they asked a lot of questions about different types of algorithms and can there be neutral algorithms? And you get into some really murky waters trying to figure out what you can and cannot um, protect liability with. And so all websites use algorithms to order their content. Um, even if it's, let's say, chronological, you know, what you see on your timeline, that's still an algorithm. And so it becomes really difficult um, to try to protect the freedom and innovation of different service providers that allow third-party content and at the same time try to regulate, you know, what they can and can't do with those algorithms. Wow. Ah, it's just, I, I understand people want to fix problems, but uh, this just sounds like one of those cases where government may not be the right fix for what ails us. I, I agree with you. It doesn't seem to be the answer here. And Google, um, in their brief to the court, made some pretty good points. You know, for example, that if algorithms all of a sudden opened you up to liability, then a company like Amazon could, you know, theoretically be sued for promoting. Um, they 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 pointed to for promoting diet focused books. You know, someone could try and sue Amazon for promoting eating disorders, or even. A company like TripAdvisor that displays reviews, they could be sued if, you know, bad reviews are conspicuously displayed on their site. And it, it just gets really difficult um, when the government tries to get into the business of policing these types of things. So where where are the voices of reason on this issue? Are there voices out there? I mean, I, there's always people calling for more government to solve more problems, but um who is sounding the alarm saying not so fast? Well, I think there's plenty of people sounding the alarm um, saying not so fast. I mean, for one, um, interactive uh, computer service services don't want to be regulated in this nature. It seems like um, there have been some calls by some providers for Section 230 reform, but at the same time, that would protect them from competition and make the barrier of entry into the space um, much greater. And so always be skeptical if you hear companies asking to be regulated. Um, but <laughs> there definitely are voices of reason out there. For example, Google obviously doesn't want to be sued for this. Um, Corbin um, Barthold, I apologize to him if I just uh, butchered his name, um, but he's... Um, 
Internet Policy Council at Tech Freedom, and he pointed out that, you know, if, if ISIS hadn't uploaded videos to YouTube, then YouTube would have had no content um, to serve up to, you know, users. And so it really does illustrate that the issue here is the content, not necessarily the algorithms. And so um, there are plenty of, of pro-liberty individuals like myself who are writing about this issue and who don't see government as the answer to this problem. So what are we likely to see if the court rules in favor of Gonzalez? If the court ruled in favor of Gonzalez, I mean, you would see companies start restricting speech on their platforms, I mean, greatly because they would be so afraid um, of what would what they would then be held liable for. And so people like you and me might not be able to voice our opinions as freely online. Um, and on top of that, we'd see less innovation. We'd see less um, services being created where third-party content is allowed. And so we would see less competition against the bigger players, we would see less new ideas be brought to the space. And so innovation and free speech, I think, would be greatly hampered. Okay, that's and that's a pretty big consideration because it, it seems like so many of the, the troubles that we're facing right now stem from uh, the need for more alternatives, not less. I agree. We, we need more alternatives um, whenever there's centralized control over our speech, our news feeds. There's certainly risks involved there. And on top of that, we want better services. We want better sites to use. I mean, as consumers, that's just a natural um, desire is to have, have better products to use. And so if we really hamstring um, the variability in sites that can be created and the freedom of innovators, we're not going to get those better sites. I guess it, this is probably one of the better examples in our time of careful what you ask for. You might just get it. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of examples of that um, in politics uh, these days. I think that this is a great one. Um, I think that the actual ramifications and impl implications, excuse me, of policies need to be discussed more in depth. Um, seems like public opinion gets formed pretty quickly sometimes, and, and uh, we, we definitely need to be careful what we wish for. And it seems like a lot of times uh, those, those opinions are, are formed primarily on emotion and, and less upon, uh, well, let's sit back and look at this from as many angles and, you know, take a more rational approach to what are some of the unforeseen uh, things that might happen if, if we were to go ahead and move forward on this. Yeah, second order effects are, are really important. Um, it's not, if Google um, was opened up to liability for, for YouTube's algorithm, um, it's not just now Google's open to liability for that one instance. There's all these other ramifications for everyday people and um, innovation and, and the um, prosperity of us all. We need innovation and productivity for our lives to get better. And I don't think it would be a positive change if, if the courts really uh, hamstrung that. Yeah, and, there, and there's the added uh, downside of it's just another example of, uh, oh, look, we've invited government to sit down at the table with us again. You know, another another aspect of our lives. Right. Yeah. I, I guarantee people won't won't like um, what politicians from the other side do if they have more power to regulate online speech. Ben, where can people find you online? Find me on Twitter at Benjamin Iannian or uh, Instagram at Bianian13.
Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment. Happy to welcome Gannon Evans back to the program. And uh, Gannon, for the sake of those who are meeting you for the first time, uh, take just a second here. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me back. My name is Gannon. I am a policy analyst at Kansas Policy Institute, and I primarily work on financial and environmental issues. And and today we're going to be talking about uh, three letters that I think people are starting to hear more often, those letters being ESG. Now, for the sake of those who are like, uh, what's this? Tell me a little bit about ESG. What is it? So I was in a similar boat where maybe six months ago, I kept hearing ESG come up and I had no idea what it is. But ESG, it stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And it's this umbrella term that refers to socially conscious investing in markets. Okay, and and, um, when we talk about socially conscious investing, what are some of the criteria that that would uh, differentiate between a socially conscious investment versus one that isn't. I, I think of the energy companies right off the top of my head and think, oh, well, if you're investing in fossil fuels, that's not very socially conscious. Yeah, and you can think of it somewhat like a credit score, right, where you have these three major pillars of what are considered like socially conscious, socially relevant um, factors that a business puts out. So the easy one is, for instance, you look at environmental you look at things like pollution, how much carbon you're producing, um, what materials go into it, the toxicity of it. But that social governance part of it also captures what is your workplace community like, what is the structure of your business like, what is your impact on the community. And what happens is you have firms and investors that will go in and they will assign scores in these measures to companies. And these scores in turn are a signal to investors of, oh, this is a company that is being socially conscious. This is a company that is not. Wow. So um, what's the end goal of, of ESG? You know, the issue with ESG and that's part of it is that everybody has a different idea of it right, where you have some people who see it as a goal to try and enact like social policy, like a way to try and get companies to be more responsible for their environmental output or their social output. But on the financial side of things, it's a measurement of risk. And the phrase I've used, um, or rather the phrase I've seen come up is an externality today is a financial liability in the future. And some people use it as a way to quantify, look, if this company keeps producing like the way it does, if it keeps interacting with the community the way it does, its stocks are going to go down, it's going to sell less products, et cetera. And and I have to ask this, uh, is is this uh, something, can can we make the case that ESG is driven by the free market or is this something other than the free market that, that drives those company rankings? Well, that's the inherent issue I get at in my article is that ESG is very much a black box right now. You have these ESG scores that come out and help determine where investors should invest and mark companies as being good on ESG or bad on ESG. But the factors that determine these scores are not transparent in the slightest. And in fact, they're being made by investors who aren't publicly elected, who aren't disclosing all of the the methodology that goes into it and have a lot of choice in what to do. 
Well, and you give, I think you give some excellent examples in, in your article about, uh, for instance, you know, a tobacco company, which uh, I think I, most people would look at the tobacco company. How could, how could they have a positive ESG rating, right? These, these are the merchants of death, and, and yet, uh, yet they do. Yeah, and I mean, that comes back to the fact that ESG considers what I like to call movements towards ESG standards. So, for instance, if you're a company, you'll hear like a, a carbon neutral goal. So, like by 2050, we're not going to emit any carbon. You will find many companies that make statements like that. It's like, sure, that's great. Can you stick to it, though? And the issue with ESG is that it takes those statements at face value and factors that into a rating so that you could have oil companies, you could have cigarette companies that you would think would rank very poor in ESG just by the way that <clears throat> the definitions are and your conception of it. But no, they actually have positive ESG ratings because the way that the ESG scores view it is, well, these companies are trying to change. So therefore, they should be better. Wow, I wish my teachers had taken that approach back when I was in school. Well, at least he's trying, you know, we'll cut him some slack. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about this need for, for transparency. Um, where, where would that come from or what, what would that look like to have the greater transparency in terms of uh, these ESG standards? Well, it's tough, Brian, because at the end of the day, these standards have to be determined somehow, Right. And I'm more of the school of thought that they should be determined by a more open and democratic process where you have businesses and investors involved, but also government that's representing people. You should have experts involved uh, from universities and scientific fields. And there should just be more of a conversation and agreement on how these ratings are made, not, oh, this investment firm is going to turn out their ratings and we're just going to abide by it. Okay, fair enough. Um, where do you see this headed in the future? I, I'm to to me. There's there's a, I, I almost have a little bit of trepidation as I as I see where it's going because it seems like this could very easily translate into like you know social credit ratings. You know, down to the individual level. Um, is is this headed in a positive direction, or is it something that could be commandeered by people with uh, shall we say less than altruistic, you know, goals? Yeah. And, you know, I think ESG is here to stay in a sense. I think that the people that are very blindly following ESG ratings are also putting themselves at risk, like people who are saying anything ESG is awful, no ESG at all. Because again, ESG is meant to be a quantifier of risk. The question more so comes from how do we as a community um, as government, as an economy come together to really look at ESG in a critical light. And for instance, the SEC last year, they proposed a series of emissions rules, which aren't labeled ESG, but are very much in the sense of, look, companies need to disclose what their emissions are. And currently the big kerfuffle there is there is this infamous rule in there where companies not only need to disclose their own emissions, but need to disclose the emissions of every single business in their supply chain. Wow. Up and down. Wow. Which is like, if, if you're a small business, right, and you have to report every single emission from the big companies you interact with to the other mom and pop shops down the road, 
that's a huge logistical burden and there's almost no instruction on how to get there. And so for the past year, I mean, it's been debate, there's been issues. And even recently the SEC chair was like, I think we bit off more than we could chew, not the exact wording, but it was like, we need to reconsider this rule. Um, so in that sense, there's, there's working happening, right? About defining what these standards are, how do we make these standards? And I think that conversation is gonna continue. And that's why it's important that people are involved and people are paying attention. Okay. Now, for people who want to, uh, to follow this particular topic, ESG and, you know, where it's going, um, what are the resources that you would recommend? Of course, besides your own excellent articles here, but uh, um, where, where can they get a better understanding of this? And for that matter, just kind of keep tabs on, on what's taking place. I'd really recommend Bloomberg. Bloomberg's been a publication that has had a lot of ESG articles that are both introductory in the sense of, okay, this is very basic, but also complex in the sense of these are specific instances of ESG being a little shady, being awkward. Um, That's where I sourced and got a lot of stories for my piece from. That's where I recommend. Okay. Um, Do do you see ESG ever being taken too far? Is it going to have to be walked back at some point? It just just seems like people who want more centralization could definitely use this to their advantage if they chose to. Yeah, oof, that's a great question. And I think it depends a lot on the SEC as this big administrative body and what the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy, decides to go with it, and also how much legislators are willing to look into it and use their powers to hold back some of the new lawmaking ability of the bureaucracy. Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's a part of our world. I appreciate you uh, shining some light on this subject, which again, I, I don't count myself as, as knowing a whole lot about it, but I feel much better informed for the conversation we've had today. Gannon, where can people follow you? Where can they find more of your work? Absolutely. My articles are posted on our website. It is kansaspolicy.org. Very good. I hope we talk again soon. Appreciate it, Brian. Thank you. 